Please turn with me to your study outlines. And as you're turning, let me uh, welcome those of you that are watching online. We are so glad that you are joining us in God's uh, word this morning. Now, we're starting a new series, as Greg mentioned, The Story. And as we kind of pivot from the celebration of Jesus' birth, Christmas holidays, and pivot towards this story that eventually culminates in his life, his life, death, and birth, life, death, and resurrection, and the impact after that in the book of Acts in the early church, I just want to, by way of introduction, just reflect on this a little bit as I've been thinking about it as we've moved from Christmas, the birth of Jesus, celebrating his birth, to now the story. This story launched the biggest movement in world history. Uh, Over one out of every three people in the world uh, follow after Jesus. Over two billion people. It's the biggest movement in world history. It's the most widespread movement in almost every racial, ethnic group, language group around the world. It's the widest spread movement in human history. It's been the fastest growing over the last 2,000 years. And today is the fastest growing movement in the world uh, today. Uh, Dominic Portesi was right here on the front row. Dominic and I were talking a couple of days ago, and he has this thing, I hope I'm getting it right, Dominic, where uh, he likes to, on Facebook, on every day, uh, say happy, and there's usually a holiday somewhere around the world, happy Boxer Day or happy uh, Canadian Thanksgiving Day or something like that. Somewhere around the world, there's a holiday on most days of the year. And I think, Dominic, you told me that uh, the most you'll ever see on that is maybe three, four, or five on a particular day. Sometimes there'll be multiples on that day. But when you come to Christmas Day, there's nothing else except Christmas Day. And then that is recognized in 210 different countries and territories. The birth of Jesus, all else ceases. And around the world, this is recognized as an impactful event uh, for in human history. It's also the most beneficial movement in history. Um, Dominic was also, quote Dominic twice here. You know, my kids get a dollar every time I mention you, Dominic. And so you, I owe you $2 after this service is over. So uh, he's also telling me about a friend of his who wanted to go and do a short-term trip to Haiti to help people in need in Haiti. He wanted to do like a couple of weeks and volunteer to go down there. But he was a non-religious guy. So he was looking for a non-religious group, but he couldn't find anything but Christians doing what he wanted to do in Haiti. He wanted non-religious, but every single one was Christian, except the maybe the, the, the exception to that is he was thinking of going with the Red Cross. And so that was the only possible exception to that. And yet that you see that time and time again. It's the most beneficial movement to the human race in all of human history. Kimberly and I, when we got into foreign adoption and we're adopting a couple of kids, for a variety of reasons, we decided, there are many wonderful Christian adoption agencies, but we decided to do it through a non-Christian agency. But as soon as we connected ourselves with this non-Christian adoption agency, we found that almost everybody in the non-Christian agency were also Christians and followers of Christ. Then we came here to Los Angeles and wanted to do foster care through the LA foster care system. And for a variety of reasons, there are many wonderful Christian foster care agencies in this area, and yet we decided to go with a non-Christian agency. But even in the non-Christian foster care agency, almost everybody working in foster care were also followers of Christ. It is the biggest movement in history, the most widespread, the fastest growing, the most beneficial in all of history that movement launched by the story. The story also answers the three major questions that we have in life. 
The first is, how did we get here? How did we get here? In the beginning, God. How, how did we get here? Answers the biggest question in life. And never feel ashamed at simply, I was talking to somebody after the first service, and they said they're sharing Jesus with somebody, and then they were just kind of like, well, you know, where did God come from? And, you know, well, that's the first cause. There has to be a first cause. And I said, never be ashamed uh, to have that argumentation that simply because we're here must mean somebody got us here. I mean, if you're walking through the woods and you stumble across a computer, nobody says, I wonder what unique combination of soil, trees, and leaves combined randomly to produce this computer. Everybody says, oh, somebody must have been on a camping trip and left their laptop here and drove off, or somebody must have dumped it out here because they didn't need it anymore. Everybody, you find a computer in the woods, says some intelligent designer must have stuck it here. And that's a very sophisticated argument. Now, the atheists try to get away from this. And they, they've said, you know, with Carl Sagan for years would say, well, it just happened accidentally here on planet Earth. The problem is scientists are always discovering more and more things that have to be perfect, factors that have to be perfect in order for there to be human life. And so over time, as they discover more of these factors, they realize that even though they believe the earth to be old, they believe the earth to be uh, you know, a big place, it wasn't big enough, it wasn't old enough for those random chances to happen. So they began to teach that it must have been aliens brought life here and planted it here. Okay, panspermia, I believe it was called, where they would plant life here, accidentally life from an asteroid or something, knocked into the earth and, and, and was brought here. Because they said the earth isn't old and big enough, but the universe is. But then they started adding more and more factors that had to be perfect. And so over time, they realized that even though they believe the universe to be very old and to be very big, it's not big enough, it's not old enough for that random chance to happen. So now the newest theory is the multiverse theory, where there must be multiple universes, and we just hit the lottery and had one where randomly life took place. Um, uh, and, and, and always trying to avoid the obvious, which is if we are here, somebody uh, beyond us must have started it all. And that's what the story answers. How did we get here? Number two, it answers the question, where did right and wrong come from? Try to explain, if you don't believe in God, why Mother Teresa is a better person than Adolf Hitler. Uh, ask somebody that's an atheist or an agnostic, how can you tell me? Where do you get that morality from? Because if you believe in survival of the fittest, then Adolf Hitler was much more efficient by that standard than Mother Teresa was. And you only get morality, right and wrong, from this book, the story. And without God's word, we become people without a moral compass. I was just reading a couple of days ago how in 1984, the Netherlands um, legalized uh, assisted suicide, euthanasia. And 11 years later, they did a study. Just in 11 years, 1995, they found that 3% of the deaths in the Netherlands are assisted suicide. And a fourth of those are non-voluntary assisted suicide. Otherly, the nickname for that is murder, is what we would usually call that. And so now, within 11 years, of, of euthanasia, uh, assisted suicide being legalized in the Netherlands. Within 11 years, 
almost one out of 100 was a non-voluntary assisted suicide. Do you know, this is, this is no joke. This is serious. Do you know that the elderly, you know how here we carry things that say no resuscitation policy or whatever. We carry that on our wallet or whatever. Do you know that many of the elderly in the Netherlands carry a card that says, hey, if I get a cold, don't kill me, okay? Uh, they carry a card that says, I do not want to be involuntarily assisted uh, suicide. Well, without the story, without God's word, we as human race are without a moral compass. And then thirdly, it answers the question, what is our purpose? I always say, with regard to where do we come from, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And I always say, with regard to uh, where did right, right and wrong come from, I'm not a good enough person to do it without God's input. And with regard to purpose, I tell you, I just can't get up in the morning. If you tell me I am a random group of cells experiencing random chance and reproducing children that are just random cells producing random, you know, a chance going through life that way, that the sum total of my life is to catch a couple of good movies and a couple of fun weekends in Vegas and a couple of good vacations and a couple of good meals and a couple of good restaurants. If you tell me that's the sum total of my life, kill me right now, I'm bored to death. And yet in God, in the story, I figure out how my story intersects with his story. And all of a sudden, I've got a reason for being alive. I've got a purpose for living. That's also what we find in his story, connecting with our story. At the New Year's Eve service, this 90-year-old doctor comes up to me. Just, just looked in such great shape. Full head of hair. He's 90. He's got all this hair. Lord, this is not fair, you know. And, and he comes up. No, I wouldn't shake my fist at God about that. You know, boom, you know, lightning comes down. And be a great sermon illustration, though, I'm telling you. But yeah, yeah. And, 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 he, and he's a doctor, a medical doctor, and he spent his whole retirement, the last 20 or 30 years, so-called retirement, he works just enough to fund his medical mission trips that he does all around the world. And he's 90 years old. He comes up and he goes, Pastor, please pray for me. I just got to figure out how to keep fulfilling my purpose in the coming year. I just know there's more God wants me to do. And, and this God has given him a purpose, a reason for being alive. Part of God's master plan, part of his story is our story. And so... Uh, the Bible story opens with the Big Bang, not necessarily the scientific Big Bang, but the Big Bang of creation. Genesis 1, verse 1. The first four words answer those three questions. In the beginning, God. Where do I come from? In the beginning, God. Uh, where do I figure out what's right and wrong? In the beginning, God. How can I figure out my purpose for being alive? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we can debate how that happened, but the main point is who did it. In the beginning, God. Now, the opening verse introduces us to the story's main character, who is God, who created this vast and oversees this vast universe. In 1996, the Hubble Space Telescope, it would take pictures uh, of the cosmos, and, and they would look, this is what's called a wide view that you would see there. It looks like a lot of stars, but then if you do a close-up, you find out all those stars are actually galaxies. And they went to the Big Dipper, you know, the Big Dipper that's in the northern sky, and they found a very dark patch of space right next to it. They opened it up for 10 days, the Hubble telescope, and they discovered 3,000 new galaxies. 
And then in 2004, they did the same with the, near the constellation Orion. You know, Orion's belt, those three in a row that are up in the sky. And they found a dark patch near that, opened it up for 11 days and discovered 10,000 new galaxies. They now believe there are over 100 billion galaxies. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this creation is presented poetically and artistically. You'll see that days one, two, and three are places that were created by God. Day one, he creates light and dark. Day two, sky and water. Day three, land. And then you have days four, five, and six. These places are filled with the things the places were created for. Uh, day four, uh, the light is, and, and dark are, are filled with the sun, moon, and stars. Day five, the sky is filled with birds and the water is filled with sea creatures. Day six, the land is filled with animals and human beings. And that brilliant astrophysicist, uh, Hugh Ross, that was back here in September, he said that as an atheist, he was drawn to the truthfulness of God's word, the Bible, by the precise order in which these things happen, which only uh, we could know later on, and yet supernaturally was given to us in God's word. Next page of your study outline. God's core passion is people made in God's image. You are his main passion. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us, he says it in the plural, uh, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, let us make God, make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the Latin, it's the imagio Deo, the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them. Now, here's, here's some exciting news for our self-esteem. All the beauties of creation are secondary to you. His passion is you. All the beautiful things he's made are secondary to you. You look at the awesomeness of Mount Everest, and then you look over at the majesty of the Grand Canyon, and then the stark beauty of the Sahara Desert, and then the cascading elegance of Victoria Falls, and then the chilling reality of Green Bay, Wisconsin at 30 degrees below zero. (laughs) Such a beautiful thing. You want to be on my prayer list, I'm telling you, because I prayed all week, God make the weather bad in Green Bay this week. And he did exceedingly abundantly above all I could ever ask. No, I don't pray about those things. I hope those things. I don't pray those. Anybody old-timer enough to recognize that quarterback right there? Bart Starr. I loved him as a kid. He was my hero, Bart Starr. That's Ice Bowl 1. They say it's going to be even colder in uh, Ice Bowl 3, I guess it's going to be uh, today, 30 below zero. Uh, But uh, yeah, can you imagine playing football at 30 degrees, you know? I mean, it's fun enough being hit by 400-pound people and, you know, at uh, 70 degrees. That's way fun, but, um, but not at 30 below. But anyway, all the beauties of creation are, are secondary. They're secondary to you. His passion is people made in God's image. The Bible story continues with the big bang of the fall, which is Adam and Eve's rebellion. Eden is Hebrew for delight. Uh, There are a couple of possible locations. Uh, Probably the most likely one is the lower one that you'll see here on this map, 
which is the fertile area where the Tigris and the Euphrates meet together in what is today the nation of Iraq. Now, they were created with the freedom and power to choose. God does not force love. He didn't want robot love. He wanted chosen love. Uh, The story introduces the tale of two trees. Tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, present a choice for Adam and Eve. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had all the trees, except they couldn't have one, and which is the one they want to go after. How many of us, you know, we know how it is. It's that one thing. How many of you see this in your children, your grandchildren? They can do anything else except this one thing. And what's that one thing we want to do? And we would have done the same thing. Glenn and Kimberly would have done the same as Adam and Eve, or at least I'm pretty sure Kimberly would have. uh, But (laughs) she's sick today, home with strep throat. So I can say whatever I, unless she's watching online, then that could be a problem. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you'll certainly die. Adam and Eve rebelled against God and ate from the forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God's vision to be with people, to have fellowship with us, was ruined. Now, the rest of the story, the rest of the Bible, is about God's pursuit to get us back. And the the Bible story reports uh, the big bang of sin's damage to the human race. Because Adam and Eve chose a different vision than God's vision, sin became part of our spiritual DNA and we produced more sinners. Sinners producing sinlets who produce little sinlets again. Uh, uh, Little sinners. Uh, Chapters 4 through 9 of Genesis present sin and the sin nature permeating the human race. It starts with Cain killing his brother Abel, Abel and it goes downhill from then. This is what theologians refer to as the doctrine of depravity. The doctrine of depravity, that is, we pass on our sin nature from generation to generation. Now, I know sometimes it seems hard to believe. Here's a picture of my granddaughter, uh, Kylie. Now, does she look like a sinner to you? I don't think so. And there's Lily. It's a a deal that Pete Wilson and I have. We always show his daughter if we show my granddaughter. So every time we show my granddaughter, we have to show Lily his daughter. But but, but Pete told me this morning, he goes, oh yeah, she's a two-year-old. Oh yeah, the sin nature definitely did not skip a generation here, you know. And I can tell you the same with Kylie as well. Kimberly and I, we've had six children, three of them daughters. And we have a saying with our daughters, a poem that we say all the time. There was a little girl who had a little curl right in the middle of her forehead. And when she was good, she was very good. And when she was bad, she was horrid. And all of us, our little boys and girls with a little curl right in the middle of our forehead, or at least used to be there. And, uh, and, and, and when we are good, the human race has tremendous capacity for good. But when we are bad, we are horrid, aren't we? And so this spiritual DNA gets passed on uh, from, from generation to generation. Now, God chooses Noah to build the ark, and he does a do-over of the human race after the judgment of the flood waters. Now, this is interesting Because almost everywhere else in the Bible, and we're going to see this next Sunday, particularly with Abraham and Sarah, almost everywhere else in the Bible, God chooses the least likely candidate because he wants to show his power and show that it's all up to him. But this is one of those rare occasions 
where he picks his best candidate. Picks his best candidate in Noah. Now, these verses here that are there in your study outline, Genesis 9, verses 20 through 23, are some of the most unusual in the Bible. I've got to confess, I've never preached on it before. I asked Kimberly, do you ever remember me preaching on this? She goes, no, I don't remember. And I don't know if you've ever heard a, a sermon on it, but very unusual passage. And so most pastors, kind of, we kind of neglect it. But Pastor Greg, who was just up here doing announcements and I, we had a chance to hang with a small group of pastors with Randy Frazee, who, along with Max Licato, put together the Bible reading program that we call here The Story. And we were just sharing together, and he made the remark that he thought this is one of the most important passages in all the Bible. And I'm like, what? Here's why it's important. is because it shows that the answer is not going to come from us. God picks the best person, the most righteous in the world, and after the judgment's done, he still messes up. The sin DNA is still passed on. It says here, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers, outside. Now, we wouldn't say that this is in the category of Cain killing Abel, but it's still a sin. Noah gets drunk. His son disgraces the father rather than covering his shame. He calls his brothers and laughingly says, hey, look at this. Look at, look at dad uncovered here. And so we see here's why this is so important, is it tells us the solution is not going to be found in us. It's got to come from outside of us. And so the spiritual sin DNA is passed on even to Noah and to his sons. Now, the Bible story offers a salvation clue even in the midst of the opening Big Bang. Okay, the rest of the Bible, the rest of the story, is about God's pursuit to get us back. But we get a clue here even in the opening few chapters of, of the book of Genesis. Here's the clue. For God to restore the vision that human beings are his supreme passion will require the shedding of blood. You say, where did that come from? Well, the Bible says that God um, brought animal skins to cover the nakedness. Adam and Eve, when they uh, took of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they realized they were naked. They tried to cover up with fig leaves and that kind of thing, or tree leaves, and, and God brings them the skins of animals before they're thrust out of the garden to protect them, lovingly to protect them from the elements. But in order for animals to be skinned, they have to die. And when they die, they shed their blood. And so here we have a clue right at the beginning that it will take the shedding of blood to restore fellowship with God once again. And then there's another clue in Genesis 3, verse 15. Here's God speaking judgment to Satan. And he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Okay. Um, this is interesting, isn't it? We know who the he is or you is, because that's Satan. And it says that you will strike his heel, which will cause the shedding of blood, but in the process, he will crush your head and restore fellowship with God and open the gates of Eden once again. Eden in the Hebrew means delight. The delight of fellowship with our creator God. Now, who is that 
he who will crush Satan's head. Well, that, as Paul Harvey would say, is the rest of the story. And we'll pick that up next Sunday. Now, I think you already know. Um, It's Jesus, and that's why we share the Lord's Supper. As we launch into a new year, we want to share the Lord's Supper, which remembers the shedding of his blood so that we could be restored in our relationship with God. Everybody here is welcome to share the Lord's Supper. You just need to know that you've received him as your Savior and Lord, that the shed blood of Jesus has been applied to your life. You say, Glenn, I don't know if I've done that or if I'd like to do that today. How would I go about doing it? On the back of your program, you'll see, uh, you'll get to look ahead to the rest of the story as to the three steps we're supposed to take because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, the three steps we take in response to that to be made right with God. And there's a little suggested prayer, and there's nothing magic in the wording of that prayer. It simply summarizes the story. If you want the Reader's Digest version of the story, just look at that little prayer that summarizes what we need to do. And if you've ever prayed that prayer in the past, or if you'd like to do it today, this could be your moment. What better way to start 2014, what better way to launch in than today, January 5th, to pray that prayer, to open up your heart, to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, and then to show that publicly by sharing uh, the Lord's Supper and receiving the bread and the cup. So let's just take a moment right now and prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper.